Today's scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, would you please join with me in prayer before we consider this passage further? Father, uh, it is in some ways a uniquely challenging thing, I suspect, for many of us as we're just seated in our own homes 
um, to be able to pay attention. Maybe we have kids who are moving around and trying to focus, uh, but also struggling as well. Lord, whatever the obstacle is, or even if it's other things, if it's all the things going on around us, Lord, we ask for your help. Um, Lord, we have prayed, keep us near the cross. And that is our prayer right now, uh, that uh, as we look at this glorious passage of your glorious Son, that you would draw us near the cross and you would help me to speak faithfully and clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I even just kind of alluded right there, um, I have been struck in the last week or so of the, the relevance of the song that we just sung, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Um, and more and more I'm realizing that's one of the primary prayers that I am needing to pray. Because, I mean, let's face it, there is so much that is moving our attention away um, from what is central. I feel like right now I am in a fog of information with so little clarity. I mean, the questions that are constantly happening, like what is going to happen in the future? How is this all going to affect us? It can just feel like we are adrift at sea with no clarity and we're surrounded by fog. And yet the cross is like a lighthouse. The, the cross breaks through the fog and can help us to see. The cross helps us to see who we are. As we look at the cross, we realize just how, how needy we are, how sinful we are, what we need to save us. And as we look at the cross, we see God. We see love that we cannot explain, love shown towards us. And at the cross, we also see a way. We see the way that we are called to follow. We see the hope that lies before us. And so that the, the hymn that we just sang with those words, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. My desire for us this morning is to increasingly be under the shadow of the cross and to let God's word help us to do that. Miraculously, God's word here in this context being something that was spoken hundreds of years before Jesus came and yet so clearly takes us to the foot of the cross. Um, if you've been with us for the last few months, uh, you might remember that we are working through the book of Isaiah. And uh, since chapter 40, Isaiah and God through Isaiah has been speaking to a people who in some ways feel a lot like us. The people of Israel in exile are a people who are experiencing hopelessness. Their entire lives have been upended. And because they are removed from the place they gather to worship, they are having to remain separated and not experience they are gathering their, their ability to worship as they are accustomed to, and they are worn down. And, and from chapter 40 onward, there are two consistent themes that we see coming up. One is God again and again saying, my people, I love you, and I'm going to rescue you. So you might remember, comfort, comfort my people, he says, or fear not, for I am with you. I will bring you out of this pit. I will bring you back to myself. That is one theme that happens again. But the other thing that we see repeatedly is the people of God just not believing it. Things seem too low, too hopeless. Their failure is too 
great. And so it seems like again and again, they just dismiss what God says. There's almost this back and forth conversation from beginning with chapter 40, where God speaks promises and God's people say, I don't think that's true. And again and again, it happens. And in some ways, we see this especially in this focal point that we've been attending to in the last few weeks. We have been looking at this mysterious figure, the servant, this person that Isaiah speaks of prophetically, who will come. And and we see these two themes coming together in the servant. On one hand, he is the, the agent of salvation. He is the person, God says, who will bring all of these good things about. And yet also, as he comes to the people, the people reject him. They refuse him. They dismiss him. And these two themes of God's good salvation and the people's rejection come to a head in our passage this morning, our passage that leads us to the cross, because it's at the cross where these two themes are resolved. That's one of the most amazing things of this passage, even though this is written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus' coming in detail. It brings the scenes of the cross before us to bring us near the cross in just very obvious ways. To me, it seems like when, you know, sometimes if we are on a highway driving and there's a sign saying in a few miles ahead, this exit's coming and it's getting us ready so then when it comes, we don't miss it. This this prophecy is meant to get people ready so that when it comes, they don't miss it. And I don't want us to miss it either. So, so here's um, how this, this passage, kind of the, the structure, there seem to be five stanzas. And, and the first stanza, which are the, the three verses at the end of chapter 52, and by the way, if you don't have your Bibles open or you don't have those sheets in front of you, I invite you to do so because I'm going to be kind of like working through this passage. It'll be easier if you follow along. And, and at the very beginning, we see these two themes. The first stanza is meant to kind of orient us, to help us to understand what's going to happen in this song. And these two themes come out. On one hand, there is this clear focus on how the servant is going to succeed. You, you see that at the very beginning. See, my servant will be successful. This song is not a tragic song. Sometimes we think of that when we think of the cross and it being about tragedy. But this from the very outset is saying that this is a song about victory. But at the same time, even though it speaks specifically of God bringing about his purposes, we also see that it will be done in a very confusing way. It says, many were appalled at the sight of this person, yet at the very same time, he will sprinkle nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Not only will this salvation happen, but it will happen in a confusing fashion. It will happen in a way that people don't understand when it takes place. And that really is what the rest of this song is about. This song is spoken rather mysteriously from the perspective of people who have already experienced the servant's coming. And now they're looking back and they're reflecting on what they've seen and they realize that they completely misunderstood what took place. And so you have the first, the next two stanzas, verses one through six, the, the person recognizing that they didn't understand just how valuable, just how important the servant was. And then the final two stanzas speak of they didn't understand how victorious the servant was. And and those are the two things that I want us to be focusing on for the rest of our time. First, how important, how valuable the servant when he came was. 
Um, we, we talked about this even last week. We looked at this stanza, these two stanzas, verses one through six um, last week. And one of the things we noticed from the outset was how when the servant comes, he is not valued. You might remember uh, this language in verse three of how he is despised when he comes. And that, that word despised is not so much of a passionate hatred. It's a dismissal. It's as it says at the very end, he was despised and we didn't value him. He was not valued when he came. And the reason was because he, he didn't look valuable when he came. He, he didn't look impressive. In the time of Jesus' coming, people were looking for some mighty military figure to, to bring the people of God in victory against Rome, or some charismatic leader who can unite all the different factions. And, and what did they see instead in Jesus? They saw someone who was familiar with suffering, someone who experienced sickness, someone who did not look impressive or valuable to them. And if we think about it, um, I think the assessment that people have sometimes of Jesus hasn't, hasn't really changed. In, in our time, we are, we're certainly looking for things. There are some things that are important to us, but what is valuable, what is important to us, it is, it is something that we know that can help us, something that we know will promise results, right? So we think of science and technology and of how it offers to give us a bit more control over the world around us, and, and that seems important to us. Or we feel the pull of, of, of wealth and how wealth can offer comfort and security, and, and that seems important to us. And we think of relationships, whether it's with a girlfriend or a spouse or with family and how that, that offers some significance and connection. And, and that seems important to us. But a solitary Jewish man who lived and died 2,000 years ago, who was rejected by his own people, who was tortured, who was killed, I mean, that seems sad. But when we compare it to the obvious usefulness of, of the knowledge of science or of relationships or of wealth, it doesn't feel as valuable to us at times, if we're honest. And, and that's what he is saying here. If we're, if we're honest, we identify with this person when it says, we did not esteem him. There is a sense that sometimes we might go, what is what is the importance of this? And yet, what he says is the problem was we didn't understand. We didn't understand what truly was important. And, and the reason I think it's telling us is because we don't understand what we truly need. We, we think oftentimes that we just need a little bit of help a little bit of knowledge to get us around the next bend or a little boost from wealth to kind of help us feel a little bit better or a little help from our friends, as the, as the Beatles song says. And so if that's all you need, if you just need a little bit of help, then something like this doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't ring true. Why would you need someone to die like Jesus did? But in certain moments of honesty, 
perhaps even certain moments like now where the crises around us have peeled back some of the lies, we realize that we need more than a little bit of help, don't we? I mean, we, we realize that at a world level, that the world clearly needs more than just a little bit of help. And in our most transparent moments, we realize that about ourselves. I mean, we try to present ourselves as having everything put together. Maybe we even try to believe it ourselves, but, but some moments we, we recognize that we're carrying a lot of pain and we're carrying a lot of fear and we're carrying a lot of guilt and a sense of failure and a sense that we aren't what we were supposed to be and that that the one who made us, the one who rules the world, that there is a, an awareness that our relationship with him isn't how it should be. And some moments we actually feel that, I think. We, we can feel that viscerally. Um, the, the psalmist uh, writes in Psalm 40 of an experience where he feels like he is um, he's in an abandoned well. You can imagine this deep pit. It's dark. He is in the mud and slime, and there is no way to climb out. And, and that, in certain moments, I think, is how it can feel for us, that we are alone in a deep pit of darkness, and we are in the midst of mud and filth of our own failure and fear and brokenness. Now, if you've ever felt that way, or if you even have a sense of what that feels like, then what this passage is talking about begins to make more sense. Then we can understand that we need something much more than the things we usually look to have to offer. Then we begin to understand why it's significant when in verse 5 it says, he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace, that is punishment that will bring us peace, that will make us whole, was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. This is so clearly speaking of the cross. He was pierced. He was crushed. And, and here's what I think Isaiah is telling us. So, so if you imagine us in the pit, here, here's us in, in the bottom of the well looking up in the midst of this feeling of lowness, of stuckness, of filth. And, and what Isaiah says is the only thing that Jesus could do to help us, the only way we could be helped was for Jesus to go even lower, to go even more into the filth of our failure and our despair and our hopelessness, to go even lower so that then he could lift us up and take this upon his shoulders. You know, sometimes if you have ever experienced times of deep grief or deep suffering, you know that some people seem to kind of almost want to avoid it. There's this sense that if they get too close, they might get tainted. So they might say something like, don't worry, it will all be okay. But it's kind of this cheap way of kind of dis distancing themselves from it. But sometimes people understand and they get there with you and they feel the grief with you. And that is what, to an extraordinary level, we are being told that Jesus did. He got there with us. He experienced the grief 
with us. And it was more than just empathy. He actually took it upon himself so that he could carry the weight, the burden, instead of us, to lift it off of our shoulders. He went down lower than us, not just to help us, but actually to lift it up, to lift us up. And that's what brings us to the, to the second part of this, where, where the writer says, I didn't recognize that what I thought I saw, which I thought was lost, was actually victory. You know, I've noticed that uh, there's a lot of language about losing and winning in our day, not just about with sports, but you might even remember the 2016 election, how kind of President Trump tapped into this by talking about how we need to be winners. And and there seems to be this, this large desire that he's tapping into. Yeah, we don't want to be losers. We want to be people who win, not just at sports, but at life. And And what is transparently clear is that this person, when he was looking at the servant, looking at Jesus, what he thought he saw was the opposite of this. What he thought he saw was someone who was a failure, was someone who was a loser. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. This is a picture of what seems to be weakness and passivity. A lamb so naive that when it's being led to the slaughter, it doesn't even recognize or say anything. A sheep who, when he is being sheared, is just passively, because it can't do anything to fix it, just allowing it to happen. That is what is said about what the servant looked like. He looked weak. He looked passive. He looked like a victim. That's what the following verses speak of. When it when it talks about how he was taken away because of oppression and judgment, it's speaking of how he's a victim of injustice. Who considered his fate? In other words, no one stood up for him. He was alone. Even his burial was meant to make him look like a loser as he was buried amongst the wicked. And if you know anything about the cross, about crucifixion in general, that is the very point of what the cross is. It is to strip of dignity. It is it is to make someone look like they have been absolutely defeated. One um, scholar put it about this, about, the, about crucifixion in general. Executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or in a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. Jesus died in a manner that was designed, that was designed to make him look like an utter failure. And if that's how we see Jesus, if he is just someone who maybe was well-intentioned, who sought to do good things, but he failed, if he is a loser, then of course we're going to go, why would we want to follow him? But what that final stanza says is essentially this, we didn't recognize victory when we saw it before us. We don't actually understand what winning is. Like when we talk about what a winner is, what do we mean? What does it mean to win at life, to be a winner? I think 
normally when people are speaking about being a winner, it's the idea of being able to get what one wants, right? It's to get the to get the prestigious job, to get the respect of others, to be someone who has arrived enough to be able to afford the good things. That I think when people are saying they want to kind of win at life, that's what they mean. But what happens when that happens, when people succeed in that way? What happens next? Does that winning suddenly mean unending bliss? We know the answer is no, right? How often do we hear the story of people finally achieving what they have been striving for and after a short period of euphoria, starting to realize that this wasn't everything they hoped for, that there is an emptiness to this. And it shows that we don't really understand what winning actually is. See, the reason that Jesus appeared to be a failure was because he was playing an entirely different game seeking to win in an entirely different fashion. Jesus' purpose on earth was not to assert control, was not to make things comfortable for himself. That was the very choice he was posed with by Satan when he was tempted in the desert, and he refused it because for him, winning meant something very different. For him, victory was one simple thing, to in every way do the will of his Father. For him, victory was completely entrusting himself in every way to God and doing his will. I think that's actually what we see when we get to that, that final stanza. There's When it says, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. That word pleasure is not the idea of delight. It's the idea of choice. It was the Lord's choice, the Father's choice for the Son to suffer. But notice it wasn't just the Father's choice. At the very end of that same verse, by his hand, that is by Jesus' hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. In other words, the purpose of the servant, his goal and everything he was doing was to bring pleasure, was to accomplish the will of his God. That is what victory, what winning was for Jesus. That is the battle that he fought. Think of him at the garden as he is struggling. What is he praying? Your will be done. And when he is being led away, it's not this weak lamb being led to the slaughter. At any moment, he could have just disappeared. You see that in the Gospels. He sometimes will walk away and people can't even see him. He could have disappeared, and yet he chose to go. When he is silent before his accusers, that's not passivity. At any moment, he could have spoken and brought fire upon his accusers, and yet he actively chose to remain silent. And, and when Jesus was on the cross, do you remember what they said about him? They said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And you know what? He could have. He could have at any moment called down his angels. He could at any moment have come down from the cross. But he used all of his strength to stay on the cross. And when right before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished he was declaring his victory. 
because he had won. Because for him, winning was about completely and entirely doing the will of his Father. And unlike those empty victories that we have when we pursue winning, when one fully and completely submits himself to the will of God, there are glorious things that take place. And that is exactly what we see here. We see the glory of victory in what's being described. It says, not only does it say, by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished, but in verse 11, notice what it says, by his knowledge. And, and knowledge here is by his experience, his firsthand experience of suffering. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. There is so much in what I just said, in what I just read. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. What does that mean? It, it means that Jesus truly did get down below us, and he truly is carrying, not, not just identifying with us, but carrying our sins, the, the weight of our guilt, the, the cost of the choices of the failures that we've made. He is taking them off of our shoulder and he has put them on his. And when it says that he will justify many, to justify is to acquit, is to declare not righteous, is to say that all that has been done, all of the muck, all of the things that we have brought upon ourselves are no more. In God's sight, we are clean. We are forgiven. We are pure. What it's saying is that Jesus lifted us completely out of the pit. And he set our feet upon a rock. And now we are standing face to face before a God who smiles upon us, who loves us, who rejoices in us, who has completely forgiven us because of what Christ has done for us. That is what the servant of God did with his victory. And, and that means that, yes, there might be things that we have to fear from time to time because this world is not how it should be, but we don't have to have any permanent fear because the God who is in control of this world is on our side and he loves us but there's something at least as extraordinary that we also see here not just about what the servant has done for us but what has happened to the servant himself so in the previous verses we very clearly have description of the servant's death right so verse 9 he was assigned a grave with the wicked but he was with a rich man at his death. The servant is very clearly spoken of as someone who will have died in this process. And yet, what do we see speaking about the servant in the following verses? When you make him, verse 10, a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. That's what seed means. And he will prolong his days. What does that mean if he's already died? After his anguish, speaking of his death, he will see light and he will be satisfied. Or verse 12, I will give him 
the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death. Do you see? There's only one thing that this passage can be meaning right now, and that is that after the servant has died, God will raise him again. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, not only has God spoken of the death that his servant will die, but he has spoken of the resurrection that will take place. The resurrection he has spoken of here so that we can know, so that we don't, like the person who is speaking here, misunderstand. But when we look, we realize this is not something that is useless. What has happened here is supremely precious so that we can know that what looked like failure is anything but, but it is the most glorious victory that the world has ever seen, that has brought the most meaningful gift to us that possibly could be given, so that we might look at the cross and see that it is the glory of God, his salvation through his son. The cross, when we are able to see it rightly, breaks through the fog and helps us to see. It helps us to see our own lives. It helps us to see what we are called to, that, that victory is to seek to follow the will of God, knowing that whatever that looks like, however foolish it might appear at the moment, in the will of God is always glory to be found. But even more than this, as we look at the cross, we understand where our hope is. Your hope is not in technology or science and its ability to figure out this whole disease thing. Your hope is not in government. Your hope is not in accrual of wealth. Your hope is in the fact that your sins are forgiven and taken away by the servant who died for you on the cross. And that the God who is in control of all things love you and has promised to bring salvation for all who trust in him. That is the truth that you most need to know more than anything else. The, the hymn says it right. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. Near the cross, I will watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river. Would you please take some time with me in silence to turn our minds and our hearts to the cross, um, maybe a time of confession or even...